On this episode of Right On Radio, Satanic Cult Leader Turns Into The Real Ghost Rider. Right On Radio. Right On Radio! And welcome back to Right On Radio. You're gonna love this interview that I do. I saw this story... A major U.S. news outlet did a five-minute kind of documentary series on him, and I just knew there was so much more to this story, and man, I'm glad I did this interview. I'm actually doing the intro after doing the interview to really encapsulate some of the stuff that came out. And before I get into that, I just want to remind you, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Every little share helps get the information out of there and bypasses the algorithms that these tech tyrants employ against people who want to tell the truth. So in this interview, you're going to find out what drags people into the satanic cults and even just getting around the wrong crowd where it can lead to. This is an absolutely amazing story. You will not believe how far down the rabbit hole this goes and how good it ends. I will also be posting this, the video portion of this interview on the Right On Radio YouTube channel and on my Facebook page, which is, if you search on Facebook, at Real Right On Radio radio. So without further ado, here is the interview. Right on, right on, right on. Right on radio. Right on radio. Brian Cole is my guest today. I want to thank him for coming and joining us on this broadcast. I think you're going to find this story exceptional, and there's so many layers to it. And, you know, as I alluded to in the intro, I saw a documentary that was done on Brian on a major news outlet, but they only gave him about five minutes. And it was beautifully done. The photography was done. The story came out, and they captured everything in a whole but I know there's much more to this story. So Brian Cole, thank you for joining us on Ride On Radio and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, man. So Brian, I just want to start with your story kind of, you know, right at the beginning and build up to where you are today and what your mission in life is today. Can you tell me just a bit about your childhood and, and you know, obviously things started to go wrong. Yeah, well, my childhood was uh, not unlike so many kids nowadays. And you know, I, was, I say uh, I used to have a story because at the age of 10, it started for me. But so many kids that I talk to now, it's starting when they're seven, eight, nine years old. And, um, even so much more than what I went through. But basically, man, I was just, you know, uh, a short kid <laughs> and I had buck teeth and I had a my original last name was Connect. And uh, just because of those things uh, alone, you know, I was bullied in school. Um, my home life was, was pretty rotten. I had an abusive dad, um, physically and emotionally abusive. Um, every time I got the, the fist or the lecture or the belt or whatever else was close at hand, um, you know, he told me I was a loser and I was never going to amount to anything and all that kind of stuff. And now, now, was he trying to toughen you up or was he just a really angry individual? What, what do you think happened there? 
I, I think it was probably family history. You know, my, my, my grandma and grandpa were Germans and very strict Germans. And I think my dad just treated me the way they treated him. Um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of been the last eight years putting a book together <laughs> and my mom gave me all these pictures and stuff. And I, I've seen pictures of my dad with me, a couple of them looking down at me in a loving way. And my thought was when I saw those, man, what happened? You know, what, what happened? And then when I, I wasn't getting the beat downs and stuff, you know, I get the, my mom might stick up for me once in a while and I get the, we'd all get the silent treatment. And uh, I didn't know what was worse. You know, at least my dad was there and yelling at me and talking to me. But when you actually live in a house with your own father and he acts like you don't even exist, I didn't, so I didn't know what was worse. But, These know, things well, do get passed down the generations, it seems. And, you know, I, I, I imagine we're about the same vintage or, or close to it. And, you know, a lot of the fathers in, in our generation were kind of industrial dads. You know, they, they weren't really out there to play ball with the kids or anything. They were really the providers and the disciplinaries. That was my dad. <laughs> Did his own thing, and family really wasn't part of that. But anyway, because of those things going on, man, I started kind of acting out. And, um, so pretty soon, I was getting the same treatment from teachers and stuff in the schools, uh, telling me I was a loser, I wasn't going to amount to anything, a troublemaker. And, and, and my mom forced us all to go to, go to church, and, and uh, it was a Lutheran church, so I was going through confirmation and stuff. And I'd get the same treatment from them because I was acting out there too, and. And when you say acting up, how would you be acting up? Oh, you know, getting smart, not doing things I was told to do, um, sassing, you know, talking back, uh, not even caring anymore. You know, you want to treat me like dirt, I'm letting you dirt. Um, when, I, when I speak in schools, I tell people, I use a geode as an example, that, you know, you get all this, the outside of the rock is just ugly, and you get all this stuff thrown at you, and you're told that you're a loser or an addict or a a whore or whatever so much in your life, man, it, it ends up defining you. You can allow it to define you. And that's exactly what it did to me. It defined me. I heard it from so many people. I became that loser. I became that nobody. I became that person who, you know, was uh, an addict. Um, so, you know, it's amazing. You're right. Because so many people struggle in life today because of false stuff that other people told them. And it really just went inside of them and they absorbed it and embraced it. And, but that wasn't really who you were at all. No, no I, I, you know, I love, I love my mom. I, I could never really have a, a relationship with my mom because that, you know, that hatred just, it, it saturated my body after a, a year or two at the age of 10. And, and I just I flashed out at everybody, even my own mom. I just had a hatred for people. So, uh, you know, at, at school, um, after all that was happening, uh, the kids were picking on me more and beating me down and ripping. I was into football, so I had football cards and Sports Illustrated magazines, and I'd bring them to school, and the kids would take them and rip them up in front of me and rip patches off my snowmobile suit in the winter and all that kind of stuff, you know. So so whenever I was outside, whether it was recess or lunch or whatever, I would walk the perimeters, hoping no one would just notice me that day. And um, I, was, I was living in Chippewa Falls, and I, I went to the elementary school, Hillcrest there, and right next to Hillcrest is a high school, and in between the, the two schools was a tree line, and this is where the school, high school students would come out and smoke their cigarettes, and one day while I was walking the perimeter, um, one of those kids, or a couple of those kids called me over, and I thought I was going to get a beat down, it was like, whatever, man, can't hurt as bad as what my dad does, you know, and 
I went over there and, and they handed me a cigarette and they started talking to me. They weren't using me, they weren't calling me names, they weren't making fun of me. And I'm sure there were two different mindsets going on, right? I saw this as acceptance. And I'm sure for them at the time, it was, uh, let's get this little kid and smoke a cigarette, get him a, a, a cigarette high, you know. And, but again, it was, I saw it as acceptance. And it was the first time, other than my mother, uh, where I saw this acceptance. I saw these people noticing me and not treating me like, you know, like everybody else in my life had been treating me. So this brings up a question, you know, a lot of the time, like if you look in, in human trafficking circles and things like that, they pick on people who they perceive as being vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, now, would they have known that you were vulnerable at that time? I'm sure they would have. I mean, they probably seen me, you know, out there getting beat down all the time anyway. So um, I'm sure they were. And so what, what do you think it was that caused them to reach out to you? I, I really don't know. I, I really, truly think, you know, we talked earlier about this spiritual battle. I truly really think that because I was seeking something, uh, a, a filling, a longing, a satisfaction, a purpose in life, someone to love me uh, for who I was, and I was seeking that outside of what God had for me, I think the enemy is always there to uh, give you something counterfeit. And, and so you're about 10 at this time. And you're and how old were they? They were in high school. Yeah, I'm assuming they were, you know, 17 years old or so. They were high schoolers. That much older than you? Oh, yeah. Wow. Now, when, when so so you took the cigarette, you got through it. That first one is rough. <laughs> <laughs> sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I, about I can relate. You know, because my dad smoked, but I never touched him. I was 10 years old. Come on. So. Yeah. So then did you start seeing these kids regularly just on that, at that tree line or how, how did that progress from there? Yeah, well, over the, the, the next few weeks, actually, almost almost on a daily basis. And it's, it's weird, too, because you know, I know today there's teachers all over all the schoolyards, you know, but back in our day, I mean, they, you know, kids did what kids did and went off and played marbles and whatever. There weren't teachers around, really. So uh, it was probably two, three times a week. Uh, they'd be over there and they'd call me over and we'd be puffing on cigarettes and talking. And um, one day they handed me something that looked like a cigarette, but it wasn't. And they told me to smoke it a little different. And uh, it was marijuana. Um, didn't re I don't remember if I liked it or not, but I must have because I kept doing it every time they offered it to me. I don't remember how, you know, how I felt, <laughs> but I, I kept doing it. And then uh, there was at one point they had a, they pulled out a magazine and uh, it was full of naked girls. And I'm like, you know, 10 years old, but yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I like, this. you know, um, so by the end of that year, uh, that school year there, you know, there was one point I remember when I was out on the yard and, and some kids were messing with me and I, they yelled from over in that tree line, Hey, knock it off. You mess with him. You mess with us. And uh, I remember paying for that on the bus later that night from the kids. But uh, when I told the older kids about it the next day, about what happened on the bus, they, they took care of that. And I never, from that point on, I remember distinctly, I never had an issue with any more students. And by the end of that year, I remember distinctly that these kids that used to mess with me when they saw me had the same look in their eyes I used to have when they looked at me and that was fear. And I remember saying, now it's my turn. And how did that make you feel at that time? Man, that made me feel so good. <laughs> I, I, I 
you know, never in my life had I up to that point felt like I could dominate people and, and make people fear me like I feared people because I was just this little punk kid, you know, and shorter than everybody else and, and never had nothing going for me. And I, I didn't really, you know, I mean, almost everything that I got involved in when I was young, I remember I excelled at. Um, even when they, one time I tried football, of course I was short and they never really put me in, but the one time they put me in, man, I remember I was like two yards from making a touchdown. It was a huge play. I ran yards and yards and people were going, you know, and, uh, after that play, they pulled me back out. That was my, my football career. You know, when, when someone has issues at home and, and you're, you're vulnerable, people smell that. And people make themselves feel better by picking on the vulnerable. So you were picked on by by all these other kids. And then these older kids also kind of sense that. And what's amazing to me is at this young age, you get introduced to cigarettes. Then it goes to weed. Then they introduce you to sex, essentially, through these magazines. And then they give you protection. Now, did, did your relationship expand beyond the the tree line at the school? Did you start hanging around with them after school? Yeah, not not during the school year that I can remember, but I do remember. I used to live, my, my parents, we lived out in the country. It was seven miles into town. I had this uh, uh, Schwinn, you know, the old school yellow Schwinn with the five-speed shifter and the banana seat. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those. And I love riding that. I'd ride that sucker to town. Um, you know, behind my parents' back. And uh, so I kept in touch with these kids and, and they invited me uh, over to hang out with them one night. This was after school uh, was done for the year. And uh, so I started every time I made it into town, which wasn't a lot, um, I'd, I'd hang out with these kids. And, and like we talked about before, this is kind of when I found out they they were involved in, in some even deeper stuff. Uh, they were involved in Satanism. Um, they were, they were just kind of dabblers. I didn't know the difference between dabbling and stuff back then, but, um, you know, they brought it up to me and, and of course I just wanted to be a part of what they were part of. I didn't know about it. I didn't understand it. And I think most of the time I, I hung out with them guys for a couple of years, I didn't understand what I was doing other than it was rebellious and it made people uh, scared. It, it was, you know, it's a fear-based religion man. it's all about making people feel scared of you and, and whatever. Um, so they, you know, taught me these rituals and, you know, they were sacrificing animals and I wouldn't do that because it's the only thing I remember in my life ever loving is animals. Uh, so and what type of animals were they sacrificing? Oh, you know, squirrels and chipmunks and cats and whatever they could get their hands on. Um, again, and how would, how would they do that? Would they? Yeah, it was during, I don't, you know, I, I understood once I was 18 and got into it when I got incarcerated. But back then it was just, you know, Again, basically just scary things. They were con, you know, calling on Satan to come down and take care of things for them. And they, you know, put a dagger through these animals and put blood into a chalice. And then we all had to drink it. Just stupid stuff, man. And, uh, no, but I you were saying you couldn't hurt an animal. No, I couldn't. Nope. That's one thing I, I the only time I remember refusing to do anything. I said, well, if I'm going to, you know, if I got to sacrifice something and I got to drink blood, I'll, I'll do that myself. And, and I, so that's, that was the, the start of another addiction, you know, cutting and self-mutilation. I cut myself and put blood in the chalice and drank it. And, you know, after a couple of years, I just was something I did almost on a daily basis is just cut myself. 
And, and did your mom notice all these cuts on your arms or anything? Nope. nope. And, and you couldn't have hidden that. Well, there, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of time once I got into this. You know, I was probably 12, 13 years old, and there wasn't a whole lot of time that, that you know, my mom had any time together, um, you know, between getting in trouble and, and my mom and dad working until, you know, the end of the day. And there really was no contact with my mom and dad other than the times uh, I'd get in trouble from school and the school would call. And my dad, you know, put the tape recorder on and sit us down and give us a four-hour lecture and catch us lying and bring the tape back to the teacher and say, you know, here's what he said. And then he'd come back, give me another four-hour lecture and beat me down the line. There, there was no relationship going on there. There was no time when my mom and dad had any time to, to really spend with me. So yeah, I could get away with that stuff. Yeah, I guess and at that time in a lot of people's lives, you know, as going into the teens and Yep. You know, we tend to lock ourselves in our rooms and listen to music and, yep. you know, it's an escape, right? <laughs> yes, sir. So you, you go through your teens and you're hanging out with these kids for a couple or a few years. What 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 comes after that? How are you after you kind of get past that relationship with these original kids? Where, well, where are you at that yeah, what happened was, these, you know, during that time, these kids were kind of instructing me and, and doing the satanic stuff. That, uh, on top of the, the, the rituals, they, they taught me how to go into Catholic churches and steal the Eucharist, and we'd defile them in these rituals. And um, They started giving, they, they started giving me, I should say, the enemy really started saturating himself and myself. And I had this automatic hatred because of my mom, not, not, not so much my mom, but my dad, just the, the hypocrisy of my dad and the hypocrisy of these people in the church that I knew about who would, you know, come to church and be one person. And then, you know, the other person outside of church would not be that same person. Um, just starting to get this hatred for, for Christians in general. So um, I started going out on my own, man, and just randomly uh, taking a, a hammer with me and just trashing religious symbolism in, in, in the cemeteries and seeing nativity scenes in the, in the winter, man, and just trashing for no reason and all that. So after, after about 11, 12 years old in there, when I still really started getting rebellious, I really started getting this hatred and vengeance for people in general. Um, the drugs obviously went from the marijuana to acid to speeders to mushrooms and all these other things. And, you know, the, the Playboy went to, you know, a little bit harder stuff and a little bit harder, harder stuff. Cause right. That's what addictions are. No matter what it is, when they're progressive really with can't satisfy you no more so it got worse and worse at the age of 14 i only hung out with these kids for a couple of years at the age of 14 um i was in school and they brought the dogs in and they found marijuana in my locker um, that was my first charge i ended up going to a foster home from the age of 14 to 18 i pretty much spent those four years uh, locked up in juvenile detention facilities whether it was foster homes group homes shelter homes uh, they ran out of places to put me at one point, and I, I did a year and a half in between two psycho wards at two hospitals, and then eventually I spent the last couple of years of my my teen uh, my up until I was eighteen in Lincoln Hills Boys School, which is like the juvenile prison up here in Wisconsin. So there's a couple of points I want to pick out there. So first of all, you get removed from your house because of this marijuana charge. Did did your parents try to defend you? Like they're they're taking their child out of the home. Yeah, well, let's let's put it this way. Um, my dad helped with most of that. Uh, 
my dad was like a cop. He probably a quarter of the charges that I got as a juvenile was because of him turning me in. You know, he'd find stuff in my room and my pants or whatever. He'd have me followed. I got files from my dad. He's dead now. Uh, the only thing he ever kept from me was files and like journals dated and you know what I would get caught doing that day or how he would bust me that day or people he'd have follow me that day to find out where I I was going and, and all that so yeah my dad was was part of all that it sounds like he wanted this to happen it was <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you should wow. see miles well if the book ever comes up um the, the those those journals are part of that book so so then you're, you're in these juvenile homes and you're being moved around and you said you ended up in some psych wards yep uh, that must have helped yeah well it was dude it was fun it was fun as a kid uh it was uh, really I was yeah what i say about this is i didn't care because remember i lived out in the country i i, I didn't get into town a whole lot man and so and so and my dad was always busting me with the drugs. I could never have girls over. So here's what's up. Almost every place I was in back in those days was co-ed. So I had more access to drugs. I had more access to girls than I ever would have at home. So it wasn't no big deal to me. It was like, you know, it just at an early age, probably 12, 13 years old, I started understanding, really understanding this whole process of building up this badge of honor and the criminal lifestyle. And every little thing that I got caught doing or arrested for or every place I went to, that built my badge of honor. Uh, so, you know, by the time I was 16 and went to the uh, Lincoln Hills, it was like, man, you know, I got these drug charges and I slept with this many girls and I've sold this many drugs. I've done these kinds of drugs. I've been locked up in these places, man. That was. So now you're you're popular from t- having gone from all those meetings. Now you're popular and feared to some extent, I would think. Yep. And loving it. And yeah. Loving it. Well, listen, it, it makes sense. Yep. Why, why wouldn't you, you know, at that point in your life when from what you had before? And this is really the appeal of that side and how people fall into it, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. a breakdown of the family. It's it's getting in with the wrong crowd. Especially then, in the beginning when, when you have that when you understand and you have that power and that money and that notoriety and people fearing you, it's it's like, oh yeah, give me more. I mean, I remember just loving being the big shot. I'd go out and rob my aunt. My aunt had tons of hundred dollar bills and this clam in, 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 in her uh, bedroom at the house where her, my grandma lived. She was living with her mom still. And I'd skip school, go over there, snake a couple, you know, and this was back in the eighties, man. So, you know, hundred dollars was quite a bit of money. So I'd snake a couple hundred dollars out of there and I'd go to school, grab a couple of my friends and, and I'd skip school with them and, and take them out to eat pizzas and buy them things. And that's how I got my friends, you know, buy drugs, give them drugs. I mean, I was selling drugs in school at the age of 12, man, drugs and cigarettes and pornography magazines. I was the man. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. You, you certainly put yourself in the center there. And so now you're you're popular for all the wrong reasons, of course. And and so you, you're going through these juvies and into the psych wards and stuff. And that brings us to about 18 years old. What happens then? Well, I got released from uh, Lincoln Hills Boys School, uh, went on, did some stupid stuff, ended up getting uh, with this uh, friend of mine named Scott, uh, 
we got a place. I ended up getting married to this girl I always had a crush on when, from when I was going to church. And we ended up getting married. Well, Scott was living with me before her. Um, so we were all living together at, at one point. I, just before that, I tried the military. I was like, you know what? Man, the military? Give me a reason to go out and legitimately kill people? Let's do that. Give me a gun. So I joined the military. Uh, I made it six weeks before I got the boat. Uh, I got a general dis- discharge under honorable conditions because I lied on my application about not being convicted as a felony as a juvenile. I, you know, my recruiter told me, don't, don't say nothing. They won't find out. Well, they found out. And because my recruiter was a civilian recruiter, there wasn't nothing they could do about it. They want to kick me out. I was a, I was a great, they told me I was a great soldier. I exported everything that I did. And I was, again, I'm a person where I, if I'm into something, I'm all in. Oh. And you'd be a prime candidate for a soldier. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So that didn't work out. So again, there was more rejection, more authority dissing me. And so that hatred for authority just grew uh, ended up living with uh, Scott and Sherry, at one, my wife Sherry at the time. And then at one time, uh, we went to Scott's house. We were out of dope and stole a bunch of his dad's guns. This is how the knuckleheads are when you're in the criminal lifestyle. Nothing you do makes sense. So we sold them to a, a pawn shop. <laughs> yeah, <that was laughs> and we got, we got busted for it. And uh, we did some time in jail, put on probation. And then uh, we moved to Eau Claire. Now... This is where it really gets interesting. We, we moved into a, a trailer home in this trailer park. And right next, and by this time, both Scott and I, we were, people were coming to us and we were big time dope dealers. We were growing marijuana all over, hecking back. We had tons of it all the time. People were coming to us to go take care, paying us to go take care of people. Um, so we were big shots. A few days after we moved in there, this car, uh, Cuda, an old 70s Cuda pulled up with a trailer with a Harley on the back. Now, I'm a Mopar man. I've had four chargers in my life. So this Mopar pulls up with a Harley. I'm like, are you kidding me? This big, you know, burly biker dude comes out and and we connect right away. Obviously, I'm 18 years old. This guy's probably, you know, in his late 30s, early 40s, big guy. And uh, we get right in with him. Well, here he's a uh, you know, didn't know it at the time, but he's a, a what do you call him? A, he, he's, he was part of a federal sting operation. He was doing time in prison. They let him out to hook people up into this big theft ring, and that's who he was. But and, and, and I don't know if they did that intentionally or not, knowing that we were living there. And I, but you know, it just happened that everything I love is right here. Up to that point, I had never robbed a, a, a burglarized a home. I'd stole from you know stores and people. Uh, family members and stuff, but I'd never robbed a home when I saw how easy it was to get money for, you know, uh, TVs and VCRs, cars <laughs> yeah. and boat motors and stereo equipment and guns. Um, we started burglarizing homes. Long story short, in a six month, this was supposed to go on for a year after six months, I guess a couple people caught on uh, to what was going on and they shut it down. They arrested 54 people. Uh, November 4th, 1984, and uh, I was one of them. So, uh, so how, how did this guy with the uh, the Mopar and the Harley play into this? Was he well, putting you he, up to the robbery? Yeah, he hooked us up. He goes, hey, I just happen to have this brother-in-law of mine who buys stolen stuff. 
let me show you how this works. And he, you know, he gave us a chainsaw and a stereo system and took us down to this uh, storefront in this alleyway. It was a garage, you know, honk the horn twice. The door comes up, you go in, there's this parking spot with a doorway and there was this big mirror in there and you walk through the doorway and there was this countertop with the mirror back there and behind all, you know, these mirrors were the cameras. And then there was this big ventilator system in both the garage and the storefront and there were gunmen up there. And uh, so, yeah, you just go uh, take this stuff, go in there and, you know, make barter with them, get 200 bucks for it. I did. And I got 200 bucks and I'm like, wow, this is cool. So that was the introduction. So it sounds to me like you were targeted because if you're if you're a drug dealer, you're you're popular. Everyone's coming to you for things. So they send this guy in and they figure you're connected to everybody and he sets you right up. Sets me right up. Up to that point, like I said, I had never robbed a home. They created a burglar out of me. But anyway, I so I, we robbed 250 homes in six months, they told us. Wow. And uh, so I ended up, you know, sitting in jail and uh, looking at federal federal charges and all that. I didn't get them. I, uh, they kind of deal with me. I got 10 years at the age of 18. And uh, this, you know, again, with the between all the authority figures I had to deal with in these detention facilities and my dad and the cops and, and the jailers and, and the military, my hatred for authority was so bad. And now this, you know, they created this criminal. I blame, of course, you know, criminals do that. They blame everything on everybody else. They created this criminal. But they certainly upped your game. Oh, they upped the game. <laughs> like I said, I'm the, I'm the best at whatever I do. <laughs> So my hatred for authority was probably at the, the height of its its lifetime in my in my head. I got when I went to uh, Green Bay Correctional Institution. I remember uh, that was when Satanism and the occult became very real to me. And it, it not only was uh, I went from dabbling in it every now and then um, to being well, just just before we get into that, Brian, I just want to walk through the process. So you, you get sentenced to ten years. Yeah. And that was a deal you cut, and this was from just robbing the houses, or were some of the drug charges brought into that as well? There, you know, there was a whole lot of charges because when they arrested us, I mean, we were living in this big drug house, satanic temple type of thing. It used to be an old church, and so upstairs we had satanic symbols all over. We had aquariums full of dope growing down in the basement. This was in November. Down in the basement, we had probably, I think they said, fifty, a hundred pounds of marijuana. Uh, between hanging from the ceiling, drying out, buds drying out, and these these drying trays and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so there was all that they could have gotten me with. And so how was, did all the satanic symbols and that get into your home? This is before you go to prison. Yeah, you kind of left that other group. Dabbler. Yeah, I was. I still dabbled in it. I still oh, you were still dabbling in it. Oh, yeah. And and did you feel it got you power? I, oh, it definitely was giving me power because, like I say, up to that point, man, I was—I you know, had money, I had notoriety, I had drugs, I was the man, I had a badge of honor, and that I helped put fear into other people too. What's that? That would help put fear into other people too, knowing that you're into that. That's the other aspect of the, the, the place we were living at, this old church. The first month when we moved in there, you know, was this corny old guy that owned the place. We, we paid him for the first month's rent. I think we lived there probably three or four months before this went down. And we never paid him a dime after that. He came to our house the second month that we were there. One time, we let him in, and he, he looked around and saw all these satanic images and altar and everything else, and he left, and he never he never came back. He never asked me for money anymore. 
Wow. It was all about to me. Like, yeah. Wow. So now you're looking at 10 years in prison. Uh, do you serve the full sentence of 10 years? Are you looking at maybe getting a break on good behavior on the way in, I'm talking? Or do you have to serve the 10 years? Yeah, on the way in, I really didn't know about the adult system, how it worked. All I know is, you know, we got so many laws. This was back in 1984. We got so many new laws as far as doing time. I think we're truth and sentencing now. But back then, it was like three quarters of your time. You know, if you did about three quarters of your time, you could get out on on early release that's all i knew but still you're looking at so then you're looking at at least seven years seven or eight years yeah. that that's a big commitment at the age of 18 yeah and so when you walk into prison are, are you walking in with this great reputation where people are going to fear you or are you scared well i don't remember being afraid let me tell you this when i was in lincoln hills boys school they had this uh, scared straight program and they take I think it was about a dozen people every six months or, or so. A dozen people they think are, is going to end up in prison at some time in their life. And they, were, they put them through the Scared Straight program. I was one of them. And it was actually, they, they took us to Green Bay Correctional Institution. And, you know, the guys get in your face and all that stuff. And I knew they couldn't touch me. So I'm sitting there, you know, with a big grin on my face. I ain't taking on that. I'm scared of it, whatever. So here I am, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, I'm on my way back to this place where I, I was kind of, you know, getting cocky with these guys. Uh, I don't remember being scared about it, but just like, man, I hope them guys don't remember me, you know. <laughs> but no, there was no fear. And when I got there, you know, there was a couple people here and there that I knew, but not many. It, it was a whole new atmosphere. It was a whole new way of life. Uh, it was nothing like I ever expected. You know, you see these shows on TV and and all this about fearing for your life every day and blah, blah, blah. Now, the prison systems in all the states are different. Wisconsin is probably one of the, one of the best places to do time. I mean, you really don't have to fear for your life every day. It's not like they... They show on TV. It's, you know, people ain't running around stabbing you all the time and all that. So it's not Sing Sing. No, it's not, definitely not <laughs> Sing Sing. I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't it was scary. It was over overwhelming a little at first. Uh, I had to niche, uh, find my own niche in there. And, you know, most, most people that come into prison in Wisconsin anyway, I'm sure most everywhere else, this is when they get involved in gangs and stuff, to try and find protection and, and fit in. Um, and be part of something. Um, I and so, what was your niche? My niche was the occult, the Satanism. Um, like so, Satan. there's actually a Satanist branch inside of this prison. Oh, you betcha! And uh, you know, when I got in there, there there was no limits on books and all that kind of stuff. When I went in, and uh, I started ordering all these Satanic books and materials, and I, like I said. When you're locked up in, in Max, you're in there 23 hours a day, seven days a week. You ain't got nothing to, nothing but time to do whatever you you, you got to do. So that's when I really started reading all these satanic books and materials and memorizing stuff, memorizing rituals, and, and just digging all in, man. I, I remember ordering a, a parchment of a, a, a pact with Satan and signing your name and blood on the bottom. And I did that, and that's when I made a pact with Beelzebub that I was all in in the kingdom of darkness now. So this is shocking to me, first, on, on, on a couple levels. First, that the federal penitentiary system would allow people to order satanic materials this can't be part of your redemption and coming out into society a better person like you know this just defies all logic and and but it also brings up a question 
How big is this faction inside this prison and, and is it in other prisons as well? Yeah, well, it's it's everywhere. Satan is everywhere. <laughs> There's no no holes barred with him. Um, as far as the faction, it wasn't until later, you know, when I really started digging into this and, and calling on demons and stuff and, and asking for more power and more protection and more of this, more of that. Uh, I don't even remember how it happened, but I, I started, really, I started my own cult. And I called it the Tower of High Sorcery. I was one of Satan's sons. And I ended up getting involved with the printing, you know, doing this. Uh, they, back then, they used to have, like, vocational schools and stuff like that in prison to give you, uh, you know, some training and stuff and, and get you to some diplomas and some things. And I went through the, the printing the printing class. So I started printing off my own newsletter, man. <laughs> and I started sending these things out to people. And before you know it, I got, I got mail coming in. I got money coming in from people all over the world. You know, probably a dozen people, 20 people all over the world that saw me in prison as the man, as their teacher, as their disciple maker, as their God. And they were, I mean, I had guys from the military sending me money out of their checks every two weeks. Uh, <laughs> so the Lord. So I, they're tithing to you. They're tithing to me. Yeah, the, the enemy was bringing me people. He's bringing me power. He's bringing me stuff. The people in the prison, the inmates and the guards. Uh, saw this they knew this they were scared of me a lot of the guards were scared of me there was times I'd come back from chow man there'd be chicken bones hanging from my cell that the guards would put up there while we're out you know that <laughs> just some of them joked about it, and I think that was the joking part but some of them feared me and eventually this is when I saw early on year one wow these guys at the chapel, you know, they're the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christians and the Muslims and the Buddhists are all allowed to come in there and do their own thing, but they're not letting us come in and do our own thing. Us Satanists, us, us pagans. So that started a six-year battle against the Department of Corrections that in 1990, I won. And in 1990, it became uh, a, a rule in the prison system that every chapel and the Department of Corrections in Wisconsin had to have a Wiccan pagan religious group. Freedom of religion. That's right. <laughs> so you you said you signed a parchment, yep. you committed your soul, and so this is this is as serious as it gets. Yep. You've drinking blood, you've committed your soul on parchment, and, and what to him, Beelzebub. To Beelzebub. Yep. To Beelzebub. And, and then you actually take it a step further and you start your own satanic church. Yep. And people are from around the world, including military Good people, military. Yes. are giving you money. You get the freedom to, for lack of a better term, worship. Yep. And what did the, uh, the Christians and the Muslims and Jehovah Witnesses and that do when you come in there with your... Uh, worshipers. Oh yeah. Well, the only thing they did was boost my ego because man, they 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 were fearful of that. They were ticked off at that. And I'm, you know, just just the knowledge of walking in that chapel every week and ticking these guys off gave me hmm, gave me energy. It gave me power. I was like, you know, just me walking in there. These people are. <laughs> So that feeling itself just meant something to me, you know, <laughs> especially the chaplains, you know, from the outside that come in and, and 
because every time I had materials come in or or we had a feast or a festival or whatever, they're the ones that had to go through the stuff and give it to me. <laughs> and that just sitting out with the chaplain, yeah, let me get that, buddy. <laughs> oh. So did any of them try to intervene, try to talk you down? They couldn't, no. They, they never did. Not, not that they couldn't. Not that they couldn't, but uh, they are by law and by the uh, instructions of, of, you know, they're part of their employment there. They can't try to do that. Wow. Wow. And so in today, in today, let me just tell you this. And today, and probably started back in the mid nineties, a lot of the chaplains that they hire in these prisons now are actually, uh, part of the all world religion stuff. And they have to deal with um, all the different religions, they have to treat them equally. So some political correctness, Wiccans, Wiccan priestesses and stuff are the chaplains now in some of these prisons. Wow, political correctness. Yep. Now, okay, so this goes on. I, I assume for the entire time, was there anything significant that happened before you got out of prison, or yeah, uh, how, how, what happens on your way getting out? I guess. Well, there is one significant thing that happened in 1987. So I was locked up by three years by now. I um, was transferred to a medium camp. Now this guy, Scott, that got locked up with me, we were best buds. And uh, this was probably the darkest moment, of, darkest time of my life. I actually, even my hair, uh, I had hair went down the middle of my back. My hair was my pride. I used to run away from home and my dad threatened to cut my hair. I love my hair so much. So I got into this dark point in my life and I had to do this really long three-month ritual uh, for the kingdom of darkness. And in order to do this ritual, I, I had a beard. I had to shave my head bald and, and get a goatee. Um, I did that. At one point, Scott came to me and said, because I, I, you know, I, I was getting very, very dark and my life was just all about this darkness. He came to me and said, hey man, you're getting too far into this stuff. And I'm like, listen, man, if Satan came to me right now and told me to sacrifice my own mom, I would do it without thinking. And he just turned around and walked away and I have- And you meant that? Well, I didn't. He turned around and walked away from me. He turned around and walked away from me. And I never, he never talked to me again. And after he was, uh, he left that uh, Kettlemarine Correctional Institution, he, I, I've never seen him again. He's never talked to me again. When I went back to my room that night, I thought about what I said because I dearly loved my mom. And I couldn't believe I said what I said. And this is when, and this is kind of the uh, the deception of the kingdom of darkness. This is when I'm like, you know what? These demons and spirits have too much power and control over me. I need to control them. I need to have power over them. And that's when I started. I had known about this Aleister Crowley guy before. I had read a couple things by him, didn't understand none of it. Um, and this is when... It went from, in 1987, it went from me being all into the kingdom of darkness to kind of becoming part of uh, Thelema, or the Ordo Templi Orientis, or Crowleyism, where, or ceremonial magic, where you think, <laughs> you're led to believe that you have power over the demonic realm, over the spirit realm, instead of them having power over you, and you're calling them up, and they do your bidding and all that <coughs> kind of stuff. Um, so you're going up the ladder again. I'm going up the ladder again, right? So, 1987, that kind of changed from there on in. Uh, even though I never fully got out of Satanism, because whenever I would uh, 
get upset with somebody, someone to tick me off, I'd go right back to the destruction rituals. Um, but otherwise, it was there on in where a lot of other religions uh, entered me, and the main one being Crowley's Thelema. Uh, but I was getting into, from that point on, uh, chaos magic and sex magic and uh, Kama Sutra and all this other stuff, um, Necronomicon and, and you name it. The darker, the better, but I had control over the demons now, right? That's what they yeah. want to believe. So, so you, you said this is the darkest time. Uh, and wh- why, how was it the darkest time? It sounds like you're getting more powerful. Well, it was the darkest time up to that point because when you are when you think about sacrificing your own mother that, that you love, I that, see, yeah. that snapped something in my head, man. That was way too much to me. My, my mom <laughs> kept me, I think, from going all the way in now, beyond. Now, how how do you do? First of all, just for just define sex magic and karma sutra and that for the audience that's listening, because I'm sure they're not uh, everyday terms. Yeah, well, whether it's sex magic or chaos magic or whatever kind of title you want to put ahead of it, the basis of that is um, is building up is a building up of the energies within your body to be poured out at the at the high point of the ritual. Now, in chaos magic, you know, you might go out on discordian magic. You might go out on some roller coaster somewhere and, you know, just the excitement and the, all this energy built up in you while you're going around on this, on this roller coaster. And then at one point, you just spew out what this whole ritual was about and all the energies is part of that. It's kind of like Buddhism. You know, you pray into a Gahansan and, and what, you're, what you're seeing change on the astral plane changes down here and all those words go up onto the astral plane to change things up there. Therefore, you're changing it down here. Now, in sex magic, sex is said to be the most powerful thing that, that you know, the powerful, most powerful uh, spirit within us, the, the biggest of the energies within us. So during sex magic, you know, you got this ritual going on, whatever it's for, if you're trying to get money, you're trying to see somebody healed or whatever it is, and you're performing sex and you're doing this ritual at the same time. And not only the sex, but you got, you know, color coordination and all these uh, things that go in accordance with it, the colors and the smells and everything else going on around you. And you're building up the energies while having sex, while focusing on this ritual. And then during orgasm, the ritual is finalized and you spew out the last part of these energies. That's all it's about. Really, it's an excuse to have sex for most people. But but it, there's, you're, you're that's right. spells. You you're casting you. spells. You betcha. Wow. Okay, so... How how do we how do you start to come out of this? Mm. Because uh, listen, I, it, the visual is obvious. You're you've got a cross behind you, so yeah. the story is going to end well. <laughs> yeah, how do you come out of this? Well, here's the thing, man. You know, the Lord has put me back in most all of the dark places that I have come out of. Whether it's you know one percenter clubs, uh, whether it's, it's addictions you know, the drugs back into the jails, back into the prisons. The one thing he really hasn't brought to me is a whole lot of Satanists and and occult people. Now there are two. Now I was just as much, I, 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 I discipled people through the occult all my years in prison. Two of those people that I discipled have made contact with me since I've been out and were just freaked out about what I'm involved with. Matter of fact, the, the first one uh, that got hold of me, who I discipled the longest, he was getting hold of me. He's like, oh, dude, you were hard to find because you changed your name and everything. But I'm doing the six-month ritual up here, the Crawley ritual up here in, in South Dakota, and I'd like you to come up and do this with me. And I'm like, 
you obviously didn't look at my Facebook page, brother. So he did, and he wrote back to me. He says, who, who, uh, not who got it, who. Who got it in your head. Yeah, who got in your head, who, who. So, so, so Brian, how did that happen? How, how did you come out of the occult and get saved? That is a long story, but basically, after uh, 27 years in prison and 33 You ended up doing 27 years, so you got out, you went back in and... And shot a guy, more drugs, all this kind of stuff. After 27 years in prison, 33 years living in darkness and, and you know, life of crime and all that, I was 44 years old. I just got locked up again um, at the age of 44, looking to spend the rest of my life in prison. And it was the first time in my life where I had just got married six months prior to this. There was a six-year-old autistic child in that I didn't even know about. I didn't even realize I really got married because I was so messed up on meth and all these other drugs. And when I, you know, a couple, three days after the drugs cleared from my mind, all this is coming to me. Dude, you're married. Dude, there's a six-month, six-year-old autistic kid in the picture. Dude, look what you're doing your mom. Dude, look what you've done with your life. This was my prodigal son moment where... All this had just swarmed in on me in the county jail, and I came to myself, and I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And to believe me, I hate, hating Christians was another religion to me, so I, it wasn't about finding God. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in this fairy tale book. It was, you know, just like all the other occult books, you know, it was fake. I didn't believe Jesus ever existed on this earth. God was fake. But you believed in the devil. But I, I believe in, ain't that weird? Ask any Satanist about how that works. <laughs> so anyway, I came to myself and I, I had this gumption that, man, I got to change. I got to get off drugs and all that. Um, there's a whole lot more to the story I could get into biblically. Romans 1, you know, you get to a point where you're so bad, God's got to let his hands off on you. Um, but God never leaves you. He pursues you for, you know, for as long as you, you're walking away from him. Uh, the Spirit's hovering over you, just like in, in Genesis 1 when they created everything and the Spirit hovered over the darkness. I believe he was hovering over me in my darkness. And when I came to myself, I think that was enough of a realization for the Lord to lay his hands back down on me because I did, I made some decisions. I would have never made in my life. And I got involved with this drug program, the county jail, that was faith-based. And you had to have a Bible to do the homework they gave you. Okay, because I was going to ask, you could have chosen Buddhism or all these different things, uh, but why the Christian faith? So this faith-based drug rehab program, you get a Bible. It's the Christian Bible. And I, I... wasn't going to let anybody see me with that, so I got one of those little pocket ones from you know, Gideon's and stashed it on my pants and went back to my room, put it under my pillow, because even I didn't want the guards to see me with it, because they had to let me out of my room now every single day for an hour and put me in solitary so I could practice my rituals. So, you know, I went in there with an attitude, you know, I'm in here to self-help myself off drugs. I ain't trying to hear none of this Jesus freak stuff. And this old chaplain, he's... He stood up to me. He said, well, if you ain't trying, because he had to deal with me, right? If you ain't going to hear any of this stuff, you can go just go back to your room and do whatever it is that you do there. And uh, I'm like, I had a little respect for him for sticking up for me. And I remember turning to the table of Bible thumpers and saying, all right, but you guys, you don't talk to me. And I sat down. So this class was basically all about scripture and what God says about addictions and stuff. And then this homework they gave you to, to bring back to your room, it was all fill in the blanks from scripture that you went through in this class. So you so, had to read the Bible. I had to use it. So I was 
going in here and, and filling in the blanks on the homework. And that's when I came across Psalm 51, seven. And it said, purge me with hyssop and you shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And it freaked me out because it was word for word part of the daily cleansing rituals that we perform in the occult. I'm like, what is this doing in here? And that's when I started doing this. It's, it was, uh, so, sorry, it mimics what's it, in the occult? Word for word was part of our cleansing rituals we do on a daily basis. So the enemy uses that because the, the scriptures, I guess because it has power. Maybe, but here, here it gets better. So I start reading and I start coming across all these other scriptures that are part of our rituals, part of Crowley's holy books and all these other things. And I'm like, what is this stuff doing in here? Oh, well, you know what? Paganism was around long before Christianity. They stole that from us. <clears throat> Fast forward the very next day. This is when God really started working, knocking me upside the head. Next day, I come back from wrecking. There's a book laying on my floor called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, I wasn't no dummy, okay? After I read this book and did some research, I could no longer deny that this book was valid and that Jesus Christ did exist on this earth. In 14 circumstances outside of Scripture, Jesus has talked about. And I had to do something with that. And that's when I believe it went from, because it made this real, it went from me filling in the blanks to God's Word filling in mine. You know, the Bible says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And the Bible says that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Not one of many truths, not some truth, not a better truth. He's the truth. I've been seeking truth all my life, man, through all these other religions, whether it was called uh, Nirvana or the great oneness with all or the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel or whatever it was i was seeking truth and now i found it and he said if i set you free you're free indeed and i found that truth on january 22nd 2009 and i got on my knees for the first time in my life and put my hands up in the air and surrendered to something other than the police and said lord i'm yours and all that really had to do with your question earlier about what would you say to somebody or how can somebody come out of that? All it, it really simply is, is do, do your own research, man. Look at how you're being lied to and stuff. If you don't believe that this is God's word, if you think that all the lies that you've been told, like I was told through the Da Vinci Code and all this other nonsense, that this has been changed by so many people and the church decides what goes in and what gets taken out and Jesus wasn't a real person and if he was, he was just a good guy. Do your own research, man. Or are you going to be a knucklehead like I was and just believe all the lies? Because the enemy only comes to do what? Kill, steal, and destroy. He is the king of liars, man. He's had thousands of years of experience, and he will tell you anything he can to get you away from the truth of Jesus Christ. He is a counterfeit. He's insane. He's a liar, and he will do whatever he can do to get you do your own research. Study this. Study the history of this. Study the history of Jesus Christ and look at the nonsense that you're involved with. And then you tell me what's real and what's not real. One of the things that I tell people, Brian, is, you know, if God can put all the stars in the sky and put this perfect ecosystem and everything, he could probably keep a book together. <laughs> you know, it's just common logic, right? But, but I think there's a, there's a really strong message here that you're, you're, that you're sending, uh, you know, research for yourself and that, 
But many people, and, and you know, just in America alone, it's estimated there's between 30 and 50 million Satanists. I was shocked when I heard those numbers. That rivals the church numbers. In fact, it probably exceeds the church numbers today in the United States alone. And, and obviously, it's a worldwide cult. And in some other, some places, you know, people worship Satan and they don't even know it. They they call it. It's under other religions, which I'm not going to name right now. But it's it's really Satanist. But one of the trappings is I'm too far gone. Yeah. They've done horrific things. There's no way you can be saved. Do you have a message for those people, Brian? Oh, man, that's, I hear that all the time, you know, and I was one of them. Really, what was uh, during that process kind of holding me back because I really wanted to believe in this God of the Bible. And I understood forgiveness, forgiving other people, people forgiving me. And if people don't forgive me, that's okay because it ain't about them. It's about getting it off me and all that. But how could God forgive me for all the things I said and did to him? and his people. I mean, I would get sexual for these stupid Christians about what I would do with Jesus physically right here, right now, if he was here. How could God forgive me for that, man? That's that's blasphemy beyond what blasphemy can be. And it wasn't until this old chaplain in that jail said, have you been reading your Bible? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, did you get to that part where it says, as far as the East is from the West? I said, yes. He goes, do you understand that? There's no end to that, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, what about that second part where he says, do you think God can forget anything? I said, no. He goes, so what you're saying is, how can he forgive me for blah, blah, blah? He's saying, I got no clue what you're talking about. You see, I forgot about that. It's erased. It's gone. When he said that he washes you as white as snow, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do that makes you too far gone for Jesus Christ. And if you think there is, you're putting yourself beyond God and think that your, your pains, your hurts, whatever it is that you did in your life is more powerful than what the God of the created universe can forgive. Ain't, ain't happening. But for, for a guy like yourself, and, and there's lots of people who have rebellious spirit to start with, I was one of those. One of the perceptions was... Christianity is just so many rules. I could never live up to that standard. I'm not, I'm not going to stop sinning. There, I know if I gave my life to God, there's certain things I'm not giving up. Yeah. What do you say? How do you overcome that? Well, that's another cult. See, it's called religion of moralism. We don't, we don't live moralism here. Uh, yeah, it does say that we as, as brothers in Christ, right? steel sharpens steel there's sparks whenever that happens we do keep each other accountable we confess to one another we confront one another we don't do this <laughs> you know we might do it in a joking way but but god can god convicts through the holy spirit it's not my job to say hey brother man <laughs> you're smoking cigarettes you're goofed up get out of this church you know what i'm saying you're you're gone you're all messed up no man you don't clean up to come to god God gets you and then cleans you up. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. I had a lifestyle 33 years of living in darkness and living a certain way and stealing everything and come across my path and all that. Man, I, I had a whole lot of learning to do, but it wasn't people in the church getting in my face saying, you got to knock this off. It was the Holy Spirit, you know, one day uh, taking a pencil saying, okay, Brian, you just stole the pencil. That's not acceptable anymore. 
Where did that come from? <laughs> so, so did someone come into your life and help disciple you into this? Or oh, did I've you... been a disciple maker ever since day one while I was in prison. God has disciple makers in prison. God has the disciple makers in churches out here that go into the prisons. But there's inmates in there. There's a whole body of Christ up in the prison system. People don't understand that. And one of them got hold of me right away, and I was discipled the whole time I was in prison. I've been discipled ever since I've been out of prison. I'm discipled to this day. No, without that, when, when you were when you were a Satanist, you had all this power. Did did you lose power by coming to God, or did you gain power? I lose knuckleheadedness, <laughs> and I gained <laughs> real power—the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so how do you move in this power and what does this power look like compared to, we already went through the power that you used to do. So what does this power do in your life today? Well, the, the whole, I think if, if I could describe Christianity in one way, it would be sacrifice. Um, and, and we see that with the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. And I think our life is, it, it went, my old life went from having to be the man, having to be in power, having people fear me, having to be the go-to guy for everything, blah, 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 to now I am his and I need to sacrifice everything I got to go where he tells me to go, to work with who he wants me to work with, to sacrifice something for somebody that he wants to wants me to sacrifice something to, to my main goal in, in life. I mean, other than, than bringing the gospel to, to anybody that I can and take, remember I, as a Satanist, I, I try to take as many people down with me as I could. Now I'm going to try and take as many people up with me as I can. And that is my whole purpose on this earth. Other than that, my family is main thing, main thing right now. Other than God is I need if I cannot minister to my family, I cannot minister in a church. I need to be that person to my family that I need to be here in the church. I've got no right preaching anybody about anything if I can't live that in my own home life. And as far as out here, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been led by the Lord since day one. When I put my hands up in the air and surrender. I had no idea that not even two years out of prison after living that life, I told you just a tiny bit about that I would be a youth pastor. And now four years going on a senior pastor at the Oaks Church here in Drummond and going in back into the jails and prisons and ministering. And I've been on the road for nine and a half years speaking all over the country, whether it's churches, youth groups, schools, wherever, uh, dance companies, <laughs> preaching the gospel or in schools where I can't preach a gospel, just giving them wisdom from this book, man, through the life that I've lived. And it's just, he brings me where he wants me to be. I don't want to be up here in Ashland, Wisconsin, man, where the winters last another couple months longer and it's colder and the skeeters are, I'm a biker. I want to be down in Tennessee or Texas where I can ride my bike 24 hours a day on top of hating winter. <laughs> It's just all about being led by the Holy Spirit into whatever it is. And a, a quick, great example of that is when I was a youth pastor, they wanted to, in, in the past, a couple of times, they had taken the kids down to this uh, uh, Mexican area and down in Donna, Texas, to do missions work. And they wanted to do it. Some of the kids want to do this again. I'm like, all right, let's do that. But we're going to do it God's way. All we had set was a church that was going to put us up. That was it. Now this other couple who were kind of helping out in the youth group as, as uh, volunteers, they had been on one of these trips before. And so, well, when are we gonna sit down and plan? And I'm like, plan what? Plan what we're gonna do? And I said, I said, we're gonna follow the Holy Spirit. I wanna show these kids that being led by the Holy Spirit is a real thing. 
All we got down there is a place to stay. That's all we need. And let me tell you, I, I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. We went down there with a busload of kids, a random guy I met two days earlier prior to that big biker dude. I didn't know from John before who came with us, <laughs> went down there. And that whole week we were there, we never had one day where we were idle and lives got changed. Because wow. we were led by the spirit. And that is what the life of walking in the spirit is, is being led by the spirit. And most of that is, you need to be in his book because here's the will of God right here, right? So is it a more exciting life now? Oh, oh man. You know, a lot of us, right? Maybe you too. We we're on the partying days and all that. Well, I say, man, it was such a great party and all this. And that. I don't remember none of that. I remember, you know, being broke all the time and, and not knowing what I was doing half the time and doing stupid stuff and losing friends and getting locked up. Wasn't fun. This is fun. <laughs> so you're certainly all in, like once again, as you, it seems you always have been all your life. And, you know, someone who isn't a faith-based person who's listening to this broadcast, you know, a question they might have for you is, okay, well, you were all in on this and then you're all in on this. What's next? Are you going to walk away from this and go to something else? Yeah. Well, only time will tell that. I can say whatever I want, right? But the proof's in the pudding. And believe me, there's a lot of guards. Uh, I, when I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor in Stanley, Wisconsin. Now, Stanley is a prison town. I spent probably six years on uh, three different occasions in that prison. And when I came out, you know, it, and ended up being a youth pastor there, there were some of the prison guards going to the church. Well, they left. A couple of them stayed. They tried talking the elders into getting rid of me because once a con, always a con. It's just manipulating you guys, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, goodbye. You obviously don't know what the transformation powers of Jesus Christ is. If you don't believe that this guy is transformed. So, and here we are 10 years, well, 11 years <laughs> later in Christ. And I'm, I'm still here. I'm still as all in, if not more today, you know, some of the guys in prison be like, man, you get out and things are going to go back to normal and you're going to, you're going to lose your, you know, fervency for God and all that, man. I, I you actually it. seem extremely happy. Yeah. There's a joy about you. Yeah. There's a joy about you. So I've just got a couple more questions. And, and one part that I got from that documentary that was done on you that I really think needs to be part of this interview and part of this story, because this is a, a sort of a, a bit more of a deep dive into to what you've done. And, and I hope you can use this interview for your ministry as well. But I want to get to the part of your mother mm. and how she played a role in this. Well, I always, when I go out and speak, I say that there's three reasons why I'm here. First and foremost, right there, the blood of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. Secondly, my mom prayed for me for 33 years. She never, ever gave up on me because she knew Jesus. She knew the power of Jesus, and she would not allow the enemy to have her son. So my mom never gave up. She prayed all these years. And I truly believe that that, that, uh, that, that thing that happened to me in 1987 when I made that comment, was, I, I think my mom was praying that, that, that day. I really do. And leave it saved my life right there because there is a point that we can get to where we are so far gone that there is no turning back, right? The hardness of the heart. Have you read Revelation? Have you read what God is doing to these people to try to get them to turn and they're not turning? Have you read that? Mm. That's some hardness of heart, man, to have all those things happen to you and still blaspheme God. I could have got to that point. 
And I think my mom's prayers kept me from that. Listen, there's a couple of passages in Revelation that still scare me. You know, oh. I don't want to be spit out of his mouth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's probably the scariest part of scripture to me. <laughs> yep. And uh, so just just in summary, because, you know, you're, you're a motorcycle guy, you're, you're a senior pastor at this great church now. And just just kind of describe what life is like for you now. Well, life like it's like for me now is still the same being led by the spirit. My my family uh, comes first and foremost. I have, uh, you know, that six year old autistic boy is <clears throat> now a 17 year old, almost man. Um, and he's, he's one, one of the boys I ain't never got to worry about. He's going to be innocent the rest of his life. He loves God. He knows right from wrong. He's one of the best, uh, role models I could ask for from my other two children. And, uh, but just being able to have, give my children what I didn't have in this time with their father. Um, just yesterday, I took my, my eight-year-old dolphin for four hours, uh, whatever it is. And it isn't just because I like it. I'm not one of those, like my dad, who's going to make me or make my kids do things I want them to do because I like them. I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to do the things my kids like to do, even if I despise it, you know, I, I, I want to do it. You want to grow them in their passions. I love riding motorcycle and, and you know, God blessed me with a couple bikes and, and I use them for his glory. And uh, there's times where I do go out riding just, just to ride and take my boys. My boys all love the motorcycle. And I take my eight-year-old, my 17-year-old out riding. But uh, most of the time I'm on that bike, it's doing ministry. It's all, you know, going into a gas station and seeing somebody that's looking downcast and saying, hey, is something wrong? Is there some way I can pray for you right now? Or, or going off to the, you know, the bike events and, and just being around these uh, 1% or bike clubs and, and other people and letting them see the joy in me every single time that they see me and uh, let me be a, 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 a good example to them that there's, you know, you can have more fun living this bike life other than doing all this junk you're doing and spending all this money <laughs> wasted, um, you know, going and speaking to, I get the opportunity for almost 10 years now to go and speak to millions of people over these last nine years. I'm sure over a million people these last nine years and just share this story of hope that there is hope for them. There is no such thing as hopelessness, man, with Jesus Christ in the picture. They're just eat. And just being, you know, a pastor of a church, man. I mean, come on, really? I, I, I disciple people into the, the, the kingdom of, of darkness, and now I get to try and reverse some of that stuff, too, and, and just shepherd these people. It scares the heck out of me being a shepherd because the Bible tells me, and I take this very serious, very literal, that I'm going to be held to a higher standard because of the, what, the job that I got here, and that scares the heck out of me. I want to make sure that I'm teaching the right things, you know? And uh, so, yeah, life is just grand. Even when it comes time to going back into the prisons and jails, and the, the addicts' homes and, and people who are demonically possessed and whatever, just to say, look at me. I was there. You can have this. It might look different, but Jesus has got something for you, too. might not look the same as what I got. But even if Jesus wanted me to, you know, if I wasn't married and had kids, if he wanted me to be homeless and live under a bridge with the homeless people and administer to homeless people, I'd be happy doing that too. <clears throat> wow. What a testimony. And so if someone is moved by this story, is there a Facebook page or a way that you want to uh, a YouTube channel or, or how would, how would people, you know, in general from around the world find you if they want to know more about you and, and get involved? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's even when I speak at schools or whatever, I don't just, 
go in, say what I got to say and, and not ever have anything to do with it again. I'm a personal person, man. I will get, get in touch with you if you get in touch with me. Sometimes it might take a day or two because I might be on the road or busy, but I'm going to get back to you. So, yeah, I have a, a website uh, at setusfree.org is my website. Uh, my email is setusfree777 at gmail.com. You can get on Facebook and look up Brian Cole, motivational speaker, Facebook page there. So yeah, there's multiple ways. And, and like I say, if you get hold of me, I will always get back with you. And uh, I don't care what it is. Even, even if it's all you need to do is vent. I know the value of venting. Venting to another Christian brother has kept me out of prison more than one time. So uh, I don't even need to say nothing. I know the value of just having someone who gives a crap to be able to talk to about stuff that's going on in your life. Well, Brian, this is fantastic. And I'm sure that this... Uh... This video or the audio, depending on which platform someone is going to, to view this, is going to really have some impact on people. So, Brian, I want to thank you for joining Right On Radio today. Yeah, thank you, brother. Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Thank you once again for listening to Right On Radio. I truly hope that you enjoyed that interview with Brian Cole as much as I did. He's a really great guy. I can see him being a friend of mine for the rest of our lives. I'm definitely going to keep in touch with him. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share. Also, check out the video portion and sign up and keep in contact by going on to the Facebook group, which is at Real Right On Radio. So once again, my name is Jeff. Thanks for joining in. And remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbors, and make a difference in your community. Right on Radio. Right on Radio.